Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today I'm speaking with Leslie Barnes and Joseph Mai, two scholars of film, about their new anthology, The Cinema of Rithi Pond, Everything Has a Soul, out with Rutgers University Press in 2021. As a child, Rithi Pond survived the Khmer Rouge regime, yet lost his immediate family during those awful years. He was fortunate enough to emigrate to France, where he studied film and became a prolific film director. He helped found the Bafana Audiovisual Resource Center, which trains young Khmer filmmakers. Now, Leslie Barnes is a senior lecturer in French studies in the School of Literature, Languages, and Linguistics at Australian National University. And Joseph Mai is an associate professor of French at Clemson University. Dr. Barnes has written Vietnam and the Colonial Condition of French Literature, out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2014. And Dr. Mai has published Robert Guédiguillon uh, with Manchester, Manchester University Press and Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne with, out with Illinois Press, University of Illinois Press, excuse me, in 2010. Leslie and Joseph, Joe, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you. Glad yeah, to be here. Th- thanks for having us. Now, before we get into the cinema of Rithipan, Everything Has a Soul, please tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to study film. So, Leslie, let's start with you. Yeah, thanks. Well, I came to cinema and um, I came back to my French actually via Southeast Asia. So I, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I moved to Hanoi where I studied, uh, sorry, well, I studied some Vietnamese, but I was there to teach English. <clears throat> and um, it's it's a little bit of a cliche, but nonetheless true uh, to say that it was on the streets of Ho Chi Minh City where I discovered Marguerite Duras and um, her famous novel, The Lover. And really that sort of um, changed everything for me. I moved home. I started a PhD in French and Francophone studies at UCLA. And about 10 years later, I published my book in which uh, Duras was the centerpiece. And um, so, you know, I've developed expertise in Francophone Southeast Asia, and I'm working primarily between Vietnam and Cambodia, and always between literature and film. So that first book was entirely literary. But as I was finishing it, I um, I discovered Riti Pan. I mean, I had seen uh, I had seen the Seawall in Paris when it came out, and I'd seen S21, of course. But as I was thinking of a second project, I sat down to watch Paper Cannot Wrap Ember, and um, and again it was it was a it was a course changing moment. It it, it was really um, it sort of set the stage for everything that I've been doing over the last ten years. So that's that's kind of how it it came to be for me. Great, and Joe. Yeah, so um, I'm from the Midwest, uh, United States, um, and. Uh, 
one, the reason I guess I got into French studies as an undergraduate and continued as a, as a graduate student, did my PhD. So I just kind of wanted to leave the Midwest. I was sort of bored and wanted to uh, get out and discover things. Um, and it was great. And um, I started my career as a sort of typical French professor interested in film studies. I spent a lot of time in France. Um, I've always been interested in filmmakers who uh, who worked in a very realist way, sort of a quasi-documentary style, um, and in social classes like the one I grew up in, which is sort of a blue-collared, sort of post-industrial um, social class. So I, the, the Dardens are very typical of this. Um, Gedi Gyan uh, makes all of his films in a working-class neighborhood of uh, Marseille with a, with a very small number of actors. Um, and And... I really enjoyed doing this. And then I got interested. I saw a couple of, of Ritti's films um, and found them exciting. And I was getting close to the end of this project on Gedi Gyan. Um, and I got a, a little bit of money from my university to go to Phnom Penh. Um, and that's where I really fell in love with the city. Um, I fell in love with the Bopana Center, um, which has lots of film archives um, and lots of really interesting people who work there. Uh, and, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of my story. Um, I should also mention one reason I think I got interested in studying French, um, uh, or maybe I guess I should say one reason I'm really, I really became very interested in Cambodia is that, um, my father was a soldier in Vietnam. He was a, a GI enlisted uh, soldier in the Navy. Um, and working on this project has really brought out a lot of things about myself and my past. So I found it really um, rewarding in that sense. Mm -hmm. And and one thing I wanted to ask you before uh, we get going is um, this has been a, a big couple of weeks for Cambodian film, right? Um, <laughs> the, the film The White House won an award. Um, Leslie, do you want to say something about that? Well, I haven't seen it yet. I, I've okay. only, um, so Joe's, Joe's probably sorry, the no, one. And, and, not not the White House, the yeah, White the, Building is the, the name of the building. film. Excuse yes. me, sorry. Yeah, so Nankavich's film just uh, was just at the Venice uh, Film Festival, which is really exciting, and I heard it went really really well. And it's it's very exciting to see um, what Anti Archive, the, the the production company, has been posting, and and Upsara Films have been posting on on Facebook. But uh, it's not, uh, it hasn't come to Australia yet, so I I can't really say much about the film itself yet. But Joe, you've seen it, haven't you? I've seen it. I think it's a it's a great um, uh, piece. It also the the main actor uh, won the best actor award um, in the competition in which that film was entered in um, in Venice, and um, it's also been selected by Cambodia to represent Cambodia's cinema at the Academy Awards. So I'm hoping there'll be some kind of uh, of distribution of the film. Fantastic, and and the um, the the structure that the film is named after the white building is something yes. that figures into your essay in this, in this volume. And yes, and I think it'll is, come up uh, a couple of times yeah. in our conversation. It's, a, it's um, not, not, I mean, there's a, for th those who don't know Phnom Penh history, there's a very prominent architect um, in the, the sixties and, uh, uh, Von Molivan, uh, no relation to me. Um, <laughs> uh, this is not, not, a, not a building built by him, but in that sort of, same, um, I don't know how how do they describe it as a sort of uh, Khmer modernist? Um, yeah, the, new, new uh, Khmer. 
Yeah, the new Khmer, new Khmer that's right. movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sort of uh, sort of very Le Corbusier inspired the the the, yeah. the the home as a machine kind of thing. But mm-hmm. um anyway, so I, I I was I was thrilled to uh to see uh Cambodian film do well at the uh the Venice Film Festival and same and, and I was particularly thrilled to see a film about that structure do so well. I mean it's and it's a structure um that is uh you know, quite present in Cambodian film from the 60s to the present day. And it was just, and, and Kavich, Ninkovich is sort of um, saying goodbye to it in in uh, in his work is, is, is also, it's, it's just a really beautiful, it's a beautiful spot and it was a beautiful conception and it was um, beautiful even in its, in its last days as it had been, as it had fallen into disrepair. Uh, disrepair. It was, it was a really wonderful um, just just repair and and squatters oh, and move yeah. in and in a range, oh, yeah. range of different people from sort of economically marginalized sex workers, but artist communities yeah. as well. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, I, I I vaguely remember being at some sort of art thing there, yeah. like two thousand six or seven or something. I, I, yeah, I think that. I mean, I think you know the 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 commercial land developers were circling for. Yeah. a decade easy and yeah. um and i think it's due in no small part to the art and art activism that was centered in yeah. that building that it lasted until 2017 i think that's a big right. part of it and and kavich ninkovich's family is um his father was a, is a sculptor and and so they're they're part of that artistic lineage and that that heritage of the building and 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 that was part of what he was documenting i've seen the documentary i haven't seen the feature um mm. <clears throat> So it's it's um it's a yeah it's a wonderful homage to that to that activity and that um that spirit. Yeah, and and a part of Phnom Penh that is now being taken over by casinos and yeah. sort of uh, generic high rises and so forth. Um, but anyway, let's um let's get into the book. So um, <laughs> please, please tell us about Ruthie Pond. Um, and perhaps we should discuss his personal biography. Uh, and his career as a filmmaker, because they're so deeply intertwined. And I know this is a really obvious question, um, but how does his identity as a survivor of the Khmer Rouge regime impact his filmmaking and um, th- those intersections? Leslie? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that the experience of having survived the Khmer Rouge is at um, at the origin of and at the heart of of his Film work. Uh, so, as you already mentioned, he was, you know, he's built, uh, born in 1964 in what many call the golden era of Cambodia, a period of, of artistic and economic efflorescence under Prince Noradom Sihanouk. <clears throat> so, he was 11 when the Khmer Rouge entered Phnom Penh and subsequently emptied it. Um, he and his family were uh, relocated to a labor camp in the provinces where he, as you said, lost nearly everyone, brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews. He lost his mother and his father. His and as, father. As, yeah, as, as educated urban intellectuals, uh, exactly. as, as you can say, but his father, I believe, is uh, in the Ministry of Education. I mean, exactly. this would be particularly dangerous under the the Pol Pot regime. Um, yes. these, these are the so-called new people, right? Yes. Yes. Well, they were all new people just by having lived in an urban space. They were all new um, and, and, and um, corrupted. Um, by by that space and its its values, but um, <clears throat> but yes, it, particularly 
artists and intellectuals, they were especially dangerous to be eliminated. Um, and, and yeah, so his father had, had worked in, under the Ministry of Education and at a certain point decided um, that he could no longer accept the Khmer Rouge's dehumanization and stopped eating and, and died, eventually died of starvation surrounded by his family. And I think this decision, this decision to die as a man um, on his own terms with principles with, with will, with, um, with dignity. I think this decision, rather than to be eliminated, right, mm-hmm. by the Khmer Rouge, this decision to die, um, I think it's formative. You know, I think that experience is really, um, re- has really shaped Pan's commitment to dignity um, amidst degradation, amidst the most violent of, of exploitation. I really think that's foundational um, in his film. Um, so, so yeah, in, in 1980, he, he left, uh, spent some time at a border camp on the, on the Thai border, I believe, and then, and then made his way to France where he had another brother. And he, t- he talks there about needing to find a way to process this experience, you know, to process the grief, to process the anger, the confusion, the loss, the anger. I come back to it because he talks about it, um, in, he, he he talks about it in terms of needing to find a way to keep his fists in his pockets. I mean, he was just, it, it, it's just a lot to carry. Right. And so he, um, he experimented with painting. He experimented with drawing, I think, and eventually found the cinema and enrolled at the Institut des Hautes Etudes Cinématographiques, which is now La Fémis. And then in 1989, a newly minted filmmaker uh, made his way back to Cambodia where he made his first documentary, um, Site Two, in in the so named camp on the on the border of Thailand. And there's a lot to say about this film. Um, we we talk about it in the intro. There's an entire chapter devoted to it. Um, there's a lot to say, but th- what I just want to mention about it is is um, when he got back to Cambodia, when he got to the camp, he talks about this in an essay called um, Filmed Speech that I think we'll talk about a bit more in a moment. But he, he says, you know, I noticed that there was all this discursive production about the refugees. There was all this talk about the refugees and there was nothing coming from the refugees themselves. And I wanted to hear them speak for themselves. And so that too, you know, that commitment to hearing um, these people speak for themselves, which is intimately tied to the commitment to dignity, right? I think this is, this is, found throughout his work, these, these impulses. Um, yeah, so the experience is already th- always there, right? Whether he's asking victims and perpetrators to confront each other as he does in S21 or Deutsch, whether he's looking at the ongoing after effects in Rice People and One Night After the War, whether he's exploring his own life, uh, loss and life as in The Missing Picture or contextualizing it within sort of the longer durée of exploitative regimes um, in Cambodia, like in in the seawall or in Shiku the Catch, it's always there. Yeah, and just just um, you know, I'm a historian, so I, I have an obligation here. Just so for <laughs> listeners who maybe are not familiar with um, uh, Cambodian history, there there's the Khmer Rouge regime from '75 that uh, collapses with the Vietnamese invasion in December 78 into January 79 is when the regime falls in Phnom Penh. But then you have a decade of the Vietnamese occupation of most of Cambodia, but an ongoing civil war. Uh, 
So when he's shooting site two in what, 1988, 1989, yeah, 88, the, this is the tail end of that civil war. And um, the refugee crisis is a product of both the Khmer Rouge regime, but also the Vietnamese occupation. And there's this whole decade of trauma that um, descends upon Cambodia that I think most Westerners aren't as familiar with because the the focus on, you know, the <laughs> rightfully so, the, the absolute nightmare scenario of the Khmer Rouge, but there's this continuation. So anyway, um, so Rithipan's an incredibly prolific uh, filmmaker. Um, Joe, do you want to talk about some of his most important films? Um, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and I think it's uh, what you're saying is really important um, as well, just to piggyback on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, he comes back, what is it? It's eight, almost nine years after he's left, right? Um, and he was in a, a UN border relief organization camp. And he's coming back to another one that is, I think, just bigger than the one he left. Mm-hmm. And some of those folks have been there for nearly a decade, right? So yeah. that yeah. uh, gives you a sense of, of, of what that must have been like. Um, yes, he's really prolific. Um, and he's had a wide range of film. He works in documentary, works in fiction films. Um, so you're right. There's a, there, and some of the films are easier to access uh, than other films as well. Um, so I think maybe probably for, both both sort of physically, but also intellectually, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, some, some and not necessarily are, the same are, films are, are, are either. Cha- are challenging, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. right? Yeah, um, uh, absolutely, I, absolutely. I, so um, I was thinking years, years ago, I left. Uh, I had, a, had someone staying with me, and um, uh, uh, I, had, I had to go to work, and sort of left her in my apartment. I said, "Oh, there's a couple of DVDs," and she knew anything <laughs> about Cambodia. And S twenty one was the DVD she picked up, and it came back. It was like blown away but also traumatized like i don't know what i just saw i'm totally captivated but <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I need i need help here that so, one's difficult to access yeah. emotionally yeah um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely anyway, I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt so that some of them some of them uh, have some difficult distribution right oh yeah of course yes definitely and so i was thinking you know if i had never seen anything by riti pan what what might be the films to start with, right? Um, and there are the several films that are a little like S21 or the film on Duch that are about um, uh, remembering um, the period of the Khmer Rouge. They're about the perpetrators uh, in a certain sense, but also about victims of the Khmer Rouge. Um, they're about um, uh, reenacting that period and about justice really in a lot of ways. Um, and so there's three of those that come to mind immediately. One is the film about Bopana, which is also an important film because it's sometimes shown at the, um, at the S21 museum. I don't know, Mike, if you want to talk a little bit about S21. I spend so much time talking about S21, the tool sling museum. That's one of my current research projects, but it's, it's the, it's the former, it had been a high school and then was repurposed under the Khmer Rouge as a um, uh, torture center for high-valued prisoners, many of yeah. whom were, were Khmer Rouge party. Uh, yeah, the members. one thing to remember about the about the genocide, and people call it an auto-genocide or a self-genocide in part, it's the Khmer Rouge things going poorly for them and blaming them on yeah. traitors in their yeah. ranks and whatnot. Um, and a lot of those people were tortured there. Um, yeah. and killed um, outside of Phnom Penh or there. Um, and so there's a, there's a series of three films, one about Bopana, who was one of the victims of the Khmer Rouge. We may talk about that a little bit later too, because, um, because there are chapters devoted to 
her. Um, there's the film called S21, which is uh, which is a really interesting visit to the Tutul slang um, and interviews with former uh, guards who worked there during uh, during the time of the Khmer Rouge. And, and, and then there's and the survivors. I'm sorry. And survivors. survivors, Absolutely. Right. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Including Van Knott, Van Knott, who was a painter who spent, uh, who was able to survive his time there by, through his paintings and, and, and making paintings of Pol Pot and other, other people like that. And it's, Um, and it's shot literally in, in the former cells, like on, on the site. Yes, exactly. Um, and there's a lot of, um, and Ritzy's very thoughtful about, where he places the camera in relation mm. to those sites, whether he'll enter into those sites with the guards, whether, he, but there's, those are, there are a lot of things we can uh, talk about with that too. Um, and then of course the, the, the Dutch uh, film um, where he sits down with Dutch. People pronounce Dutch's name in various ways. I say Dutch. Um, uh, I say Deutsch. And <laughs> Deutsch. Uh, uh, so there's all kinds of ways. But yeah. um, spelled, spelled uh, D-U-C-H. D-U-C-H. And confronts Dutch with the past and sort of interrogates him. And it's a really fascinating, very, very influential film um, about a perpetrator and this confrontation with a, a, a victim of, the, of that same system. Um, and as you said, really emotionally intense uh, film. Just a, also a really important film. Yeah. And, and, um, and Deutsch was the the commandant of oh, yes. the slang of, of S twenty one, and um, one of the four Khmer Rouge leaders to be put on trial in the ECC. Uh, he had gone yes, um, and he had gone. He had undergone a conversion to Christianity after. Um, and was finally found by some some hardy um, journalists um, yeah. uh, and brought to justice after that. Um, and so those are these are great films. The, uh, the fictional films I like a lot as well. Um, there's a film called Rice People that maybe folks can find. Um, another film called One Evening After the War. Um, and uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm just giving you titles here, but these are they're just great works that people uh, should see, and maybe we'll be able to talk to, about some of them as we go forward. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. And of course, the film that probably everyone should see is called The Missing Picture, mm-hmm. um, and this uh, was actually not just selected by Cambodia, but one of the nominations for best foreign film. Uh, at the Academy Awards in 2013. So it's sort of the film that put Riti Pan on the international film uh, map, um, and very deservedly so. Extremely rich film, combining all kinds of uh, different kinds of images, um, reenactments, um, some reenactments done through miniatures that are uh, uh, hand-carved in clay, um, just an extre- autobiographical, but also collective film, just an extremely, extremely uh, rich film about memory, where memory just kind of uh, guides everything that happens in the film. Uh, and so I think that film is really transcendent. It's a film that will remain. Um, actually, later you ask about what Riti Pan's legacy might be, um, but that's a film that's going to remain. So. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then there's... Yeah, as as a French colonial historian, then there's the film on the French colonial experience in uh, in Vietnam with um, his adaptation of Marguerite Duras's The Seawall, which is the that novel was the the first of her three different retellings 
of her life story um, as a, a, a relatively poor um, uh, white settler family in, in the, just across the, the border in uh, from Vietnam and Cambodia. Yes, and, with um, Isabel Lubeo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is you know su- su- such a different uh, a different film, which um you know, it makes me wonder you know uh, what are some of the recurring themes in his work, um, Leslie? Oh, yeah. I, I would. Um, I, I think it kind of depends on who you ask. You know, mm. for me, um, the, the the themes that come to mind Im- immediately. Are, well, first of all, dignity. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a a commitment behind the films, uh, but I also think it's a recurring theme within the film. So the struggle, the struggle for dignity um, within the context of mourning, dignity for the dead um, in the midst of ruin, um, and we have a strong emphasis too on the relationship between dignity and art. Um, I think uh, artistic practice is another big theme in his work. Um, Precisely, art as a as a means to reclaim dignity, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. art as a means and, of resistance, and to, and to process. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to process trauma through, yes. through creation. Yeah, yeah, not just trauma, but to process uh, one's place in the world. I mean, oh, yeah. so I've, yeah. I, as I said, I've been I've been watching one uh, paper cannot wrap ember, which came out I think in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, for the last decade, I've been thinking about that film. And um, I have just recently started thinking about the role of artistic practice, of, of, of the, the fact that they're drawing and, and cutting and pasting and, and, and all of the art and the ways in which this art allows them, the women to sort of make sense of themselves, develop their consciousness, both political and social consciousness, um, yeah, it's it's a way to process trauma, but it's it's a it's a way to process, um, yeah, one's place in the world. Um, um, it's a way to carry on. Art as a means to carry on is a is a big theme in his work too. So he, he's he's a very experimental director in a number of ways, but does he, does he have a certain style? Is there a a, a Rithipon look? Mm. Yeah, I, I'll take this one. Um, uh, Leslie mentioned a text that he wrote sort of in conjunction with his first film or in which he talks a lot about his first film, um, uh, Site 2. Uh, it's called Film Speech. Um, and it's really a text about the ethics of images. Um, and so, you know, in 1988, 1989, there are actually a lot of images, um, filmed images of Cambodians, but they're all sort of you know, they're miserable people, they're refugees, they don't have a voice, they don't have a story, um, they're highly interpreted by sort of um, off-screen voices of authority, Western voices usually that tell us what we're supposed to think of, of these people. And I think that the beginning, of, the beginning of his career starts with him sort of putting his foot down about that sort of images, those sort of images of Cambodians and he wants to make different ones. And some of the early documentaries seem just, they feel different from normal documentaries, although it's not that easy to identify in watching them until one starts thinking about them, what those differences are. So for example, the, you know, the person he's filming will just speak, which is already a big difference at that time. Um, and instead of, uh, 
the giving an explanation of something that person will just tell about their experiences. And so the shots will go on. The person speaking will repeat themselves or they'll go from one subject to another or they'll be interrupted by their children coming by or they'll walk around um, and show Riti and uh, hit the person holding the camera their home and the and what's how small the spaces are, what kind of rations they get from the UN uh, to eat per day and, and those sorts of things. Um, you'll hear their breathing. You'll hear you know the bugs in the background, even the the sort of uh, sound or music that the films will use will sound like like voices or they'll sound like um, insects or birds or and things like that. Right. So you'll start building up this language. Um, the camera will be at the level of the person. Uh, the person will be shown in a uh, in a lighting that is just um, enhancing of them instead of having them, you know, seen. I don't know, um, with no clothes on or in dirty roads or things like that, right? So he'll just sort of bring out the humanity uh, in people in a lot of his documentaries um, in interesting ways. And then as time goes on, this idea of of um, providing these new images um, for Cambodian experiences will require more and more complex um, type of images um, and memory will start to play an even more important role for him. And so he will engage with all these sort of newer techniques or techniques that have now become sort of, they're things that you see in documentaries generally like reenactment, right? Um, well, he really needed to uh, use reenactment in several of those films just to get to the truth of what was happening at S21, for example, or to get the guards to see themselves as ethical beings as well and talk about what they have done, confront what they have done. Um, and so reenactment is something, but also a montage with found footage or with documentary footage from the period or when there are um, events uh, for which there are no images, having someone carve a, uh, a, a clay sculpture, uh, but not just a clay sculpture, hundreds of clay, sculpt uh, clay sculptures yeah. Yeah. and entire panoramas where they're placed and where they're moved around and where the background is being manipulated so they look like they're flying and things like that, right? And so just this... Uh, build up uh, more and more of a uh, continually um, ambitious form. I think um, that's how I would describe his style, really. Uh, the most recent film, which uh, is a really difficult, intellectually difficult film to see, is uh, called Irradiated. I'm, I'm actually not sure if it's had any release in the United States, but it's a, a triptych. It's got three images. Sometimes those images are showing the same thing. Sometimes they're showing different things. There's no, uh, there's no linear narrative. There's, uh, uh, there's two voices um, that give voiceover commentary to the images one of a younger woman, one of an older man. Um, so his style can get really, really complex, um, but it's, it's never gratuitously so, um, even though it can be difficult sometimes to, to figure out exactly what's going on. Right. And the, I mean, again, the S21 was the first film of his that I saw and, and um, just that style of that, uh, having the guards and the, uh, the prisoners confront each other mm in, in the space. And, um, 
that that work, then also the work he's doing that's that's so different from other documentary filmmakers, and that he, there's there's no stock. I mean, there's very few photographs, very few um, uh, rolls of uh, film from the Khmer Rouge era um, mm-hmm. um, that he that that it it, it requires this this recreation reenactment and 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 as you said sort of this this creative uh process of carving fi- uh clay figures and so forth to to uh create an image for i mean this is film for the create something for the viewer um there those, and those images so fascinating and but also so historically specific yes. to the case of this this you know massive crime against humanity that's different than some of the others. I'm I'm sorry, we were saying yeah, no, no, no. Um, those images that do exist even are to be looked at with a great deal of skepticism. And I know that um, Leslie will probably mention Jennifer Kaznov's um, piece in our uh, in the book where uh, where you see Ritty doing this sort of critical look at colonial period. Uh, yeah, film. but even elsewhere, he uses um, he uses footage. Uh, Khmer Rouge archival footage across different films and in different ways and like within different sort of syntactical chains, right? Such that they take on different meanings um, in relation to the material that surrounds them. So you've got the same image that can either refer to um, the the victimization of the of the the peasants in the countryside or the sort of capitalist um, enemies that were be to be eliminated. I mean, it, it shifts this meaning, and so I think there's always that sort of uh, we're put on guard against these you know, with, in relation to these archival images and asked to 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 to, to recognize how slippery they are in terms of um, the meaning that they convey or the ways in which they're used to convey meaning. Right. So, so how did this volume come, come about? I mean, at w- where did the cinema of Rithi Pond, Everything Has a Soul, come from? What was your inspiration for this? Well, um, so about three or four years ago, Joe emailed me out of the blue and <laughs> um, one, wanting to talk about Rithi Pond, And I was only too happy to oblige um, <laughs> this, this new friend in, in, uh, South Carolina. He had just, uh, Joe, you had just finished, I think, your essay on site two for the world cinema volume that came out with Edinburgh in 2018. And he had read my article from 2015 on, on paper cannot wrap ember and appreciated it and wanted to talk about it. So we struck up an email correspondence. And I think a couple months into that correspondence, we both realized that there was a project here. I mean, we both we both felt the lack of a book length project on Rithipan, mm-hmm. the lack of um, a manuscript, and lack of there no collection of essays, and we both felt that it was well past time. And and so at a certain point, we just said, you know, why not us? Why not now? Mm-hmm. Let's do this. And so we put together a call for papers and got a really fantastic response. Um, and and so it just it went from there. We I think that. Um, you know, we never really had this conversation, but I think that it was uh, clear from the start that rather than co-author something, which we could have pursued, um, the idea of putting a volume together was was really important because um, because Pan's work is taken up in so many different disciplinary spaces mm-hmm. that we wanted those disciplinary takes, and we also wanted Cambodian voices, and so it was you know 
um, as much as possible, we wanted scholars and people from the diaspora or even in Cambodia to to, to contribute to to shaping the volume. And um, yeah, so that's it. So we organized um, in 2019, we organized a, a workshop in at the Bopana Center in Phnom Penh that brought together about half of the contributors uh, together with um, local audiences and people from the center, practitioners in the center. And then and it, and it was happening at the same time as an international conference on genocide studies in Phnom Penh. That's right. Which um, I, I, I had just left Cambodia in May and couldn't couldn't get back in time. And I'm really, this was going on too. Uh, I would have loved to have attended this uh, this workshop. Yeah, I'd like to just um, emphasize something Leslie just said. Um, we really felt like we needed um, scholars from a lot of different types of fields. So mm-hmm. if you look at the folks in the book, we have anthropologists, we have historians, we have film studies people, um, we have people who work on refugee studies, we have, um, and, and we also wanted the Cambodian voices. So we have a lot of sort of 1.5, you know, one and a half generation immigrants. Um, and I think that it is just far better this way than anything either of us could have done, individually, at least I could have done individually, especially as a, as a French scholar and mainly a film scholar and not someone versed in Cambodian history. Um, so we're really happy with that aspect of the book. Yeah, I really did enjoy those different disciplinary approaches. And, and, there, and then there are a couple of surprises for me. I mean, I saw some familiar names, Borth Lee, that, you know, he's, he's at UC Santa Cruz, fantastic work, um, has, has a new book out on, um, on the subject. Um, but also Donald Reed, who, he, he, Donald Reed in the 1980s wrote uh, Paris Sewers and Sewermen, which led to me writing a book about French colonial sewer rats. Um, so I was, I had no idea that he had great things to say about the uh, the work of Ruthie Pond. I really enjoyed his chapter. So, um, uh, after you, after the book's introduction, which you two co authored, the book's divided into four parts. Uh, the first is Aftermath, the cinema of post war survival. Second is From Colonial to Global Cambodia. Third is The Question of Justice. And the fourth is Memory, Voice, and Cinematic Practice. So we'll, we'll, go, we'll, t- we'll talk about each, each of these four sections. Um, um, Joe, can you talk about part one, uh, Aftermath of a Cinema, excuse me, Aftermath, a Cinema of Post-War Survival? Uh, yes, the challenge here is going to be to be brief, but I'm going yeah. to um, I'm going to uh, do my best here. You could you could speak for an hour on each of these essays, right? Oh, definitely, yeah. okay. definitely. <laughs> um, I won't, uh, but I could. Um, so yeah, the first uh, the first part is really a, uh, about sort of coming back to life after after these traumatic events, after these awful this awful history, not just the Khmer Rouge, but the the Vietnamese. Act occupation and every civil wars, everything. Yeah. Um, and, and then, and, and also the civil war before, right? I mean, there's the long, right. we don't even talk about long, 75, but the civil war starts since what? 67. I mean, it's, yes. it's a much, it's a much longer period of yes. trouble. Yeah. Uh, and Ritty himself, you know, there, uh, some, Sometimes people will not accuse him, but will accuse people of his generation of thinking that there was this 
great golden perfect age under Sihanouk. Um, and Ritti doesn't think that he, yeah. he certainly is clear about the problems that existed before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, uh, things happen, uh, and, and important major things happen. Um, how, I guess, um, I would frame this section of the, of the book with a concept, a Khmer concept actually, which is called box bot. Um, and this is something that is mentioned in all three of these essays. And Baxbat is a Khmer word that means something like broken form or broken soul. And it is, it's kind of the idiom, the Khmer idiom for talking about trauma. So one of the things I discovered working on the book was that there are other ways of speaking about trauma and sort of Western uh, psychoanalytic um, uh, ways of speaking about it. Um, and Baxbat is is frequently spoken of as a, a sort of shattering. And it's, it, there's a lot of sort of um, echoes with, even with some of the, um, the, the sort of Khmer Rouge jargon as well. Um, so I like to think of it as like a clay pot that's been thrown down on the ground, right? It's shattered. And box pot means it's shattered. There's no reparation that can be done. Uh, there's no way of putting it back. There's no glue good enough to make it perfect. Um, but something else has to happen, right? You have to relearn to live. You have to sort of relearn to love, relearn to trust the world. Trust is a big issue um, uh, for survivors of, of this genocide. Um, and so all of these essays in some way deal with sort of piecing back together a life um, after this history. So Brett Lee, for example, uh, looks at the figure of the uh, the mad mother in Ritti's films. Um, and she's sort of a figure of a broken family structure, broken tradition, broken. Uh, types of traditional ways of living. Um, and she pops up in a lot of films. Um, in the, uh, and uh, the very first film site two, uh, which is a documentary about the, uh, about the, the refugee camp. Um, Ritzy spends a lot of time interviewing a woman named Yim Om. Um, and she is the, and that name is taken for a character in his first fiction film, which is called Rice People. And she is the first sort of fictional mad mother in his, in his films. Um, and in that film, she's played by an actress um, named Peng Pan, uh, who plays herself in a later film called The Burn Theater, um, where she is dealing with issues of trauma, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this theme that, go, and it's, you find it in, even in, um, uh, the seawall as well, right? The, the Isabelle Hubert character is something of a mad mother. So there's this theme that goes through a lot of Ritti's films. Um, and Ritti sort of identifies with the mad mother in a lot of ways. Um, and so Borat explores that um, with some depth. Um, the second chapter is actually my chapter. It's about the burnt theater. Um, so the burnt theater was uh, is a part of this nation building new Khmer culture efforts made by Sihanouk. You know, after independence from France, how do you build a Cambodian identity, right? Um, it's through, for Sihanouk especially, it's through the arts. Um, mm -hmm. And so through theater, through dance, his mother was very interested in traditional dance and she sort of founded these schools of dance. Um, how could obviously architecture in Cambodia is going to be a very important part mm -hmm. of uh, of this cultural building, 
Um, and so people like uh, Van Molivan, Lou Van Hop, um, other architects and, uh, and designers sort of redid um, the architecture of Phnom Penh, sort of combining traditional forms with these modernist forms, which you mentioned um, earlier, like Le Corbusier. Um, and probably, you know, they're of the masterpieces and these are, these are really, really talented architectures. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of masterpieces, um, the stadium, the Olympic stadium, which yeah. is still standing today, although it's in some disrepair is really just an incredible building. You could spend days and days wandering around that building. Um, the white building, uh, which was built to eventually to house artists. So people who worked at the, um, at the arts university, the new arts university, um, and also people who worked at the National Theater, which was this re- really, really beautiful theater built, uh, designed by Van Molivan. Um, and it caught fire. You know, it was empty during the Khmer Rouge years. People came back afterwards. Um, it was in a state of neglect um, during a long t- period. Uh, and then, you know, international, global, free capital came into Cambodia. Uh, development started happening and the building was um, sort of targeted. Um, there was a, um, uh, there's, there was a renovation that was being done by a French company, but the building caught fire and it was half destroyed. Um, that was in the late nineties. Um, but the artists were still working there in 2004 when Ritti made this film with them. And I think their, their sort of resilience in continuing, insisting on creating art in this building um, sort of provided him also with some inspiration or some collaboration. Um, and this is a part of overcoming uh, this, these, this trauma, the trauma of their lives, the trauma of this, dis- this disappearing nation really um, through art. Um, and we see that throughout um, Ritti's work. And then finally, and, and, and this, Oop, this, is, this is in the essay you wrote. This is the essay yeah, yeah. I wrote. Yes. Yeah. Um, Kataria Um's essay, which rounds off this uh, section, um, is a really beautiful essay. She is um, she's interested in the diaspora, and she writes about um, uh, a film that is not easy to see. Um, uh, it was made in France um, uh, with two principal characters. One is a Cambodian woman um, who uh, owns a, a restaurant um, in Paris, and the other is a taxi driver from Vietnam, both who sort of shared this traumatic past and they sort of fall in love, but they undergo all kinds of, of, um, of difficulties. Um, but Kataria's work is really about um, what happened to people in Cambodia before they left um, and how the uh, how what they lived through um, the traumatic events they lived through are how that's compounded in these new societies that they find themselves in dealing with you know just um, casual racism for example um, dealing with meeting other expats um, uh, uh, all the types of problems, de- dealing with poverty, dealing with all the types of problems that refugees often have, um, and the sort of compounding of these issues in her work is wonderful for taking those apart and al- analyzing each each of them. So, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I should stop there uh, with that part because there are four parts. To this yeah, book. I mean, we could each of these essays are so rich we could talk about them. They're for really leisure. rich. So the the second section is um, from colonial to global Cambodia. Uh, Leslie, do you want to say a few words on that? Yes, um, I'd be happy to. So. Um, you know, you, we, we've talked about the extreme history that that Pan is dealing with mm-hmm. in his in a lot of his work, and I think that he often places this history um, in in dialogue with other exploitative regimes, with other moments in time mm-hmm. um, that have marred Cambodia's past, that 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 are shaping its its present and its future. There's a there's a, an interview from the early two thousands where he notes something along the lines of. Um, you know, there was misery in Cambodia before the Khmer Rouge, and it remains today. And really, it's the poor who pay, no matter the regime. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what we're drawing out in this second section, which is which is bookended by essays from Jack Yeager and Rachel mm-hmm. Harrison on the seawall, and then on the other end, uh, my essay on the land of the wandering souls. And in both of these films and in in both of these essays, there's a marked um, emphasis on the working poor, be they the peasant farmers of the colonial period or the migrant workers of the late 1990s, and the relationship between these working poor and the land that they work. And so that, I would say, is actually another major theme that I didn't mention Mm -hmm. earlier, the land, Um, the land that is, you know... um, a source of sustenance and promise, the land that is um, taken from them, um, if, you know, that they're cheated out of, the land that they toil, but which they, from which they're very unlikely to benefit. Um, it, that's certainly the case in these two films. So Jack and Rachel are looking um, at French colonialism. Obviously, as you mentioned, this is an adaptation of Duras's novel of the same name. And, and they are, you know, they argue that they're looking at the specific aesthetic choices that Pan made in the adaptation, and they argue that the, his product, his version of this of this narrative, reasserts the the critique, the critique of colonialism mm-hmm. leveled in Duras's essay, which or sorry, Duras's novel, which was silent, sidelined in its reception in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, you know, which is you know when France France was uh, at war with the Vietnamese, and. Um, so, and one of the ways that he 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 draws out that critique is is by um, placing a certain emphasis on 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 the solidarity between the poor white colon family and the peasant farmers along whom alongside whom they work, um, and by by emphasizing the shared experience of um, of corruption, of deception, of of um, you know, of exploitation at the hands, not only of the French colonial aid, land agents, but also at the hands of a certain class of Asian intermediaries mm-hmm. who are ready to exploit the poor as well. Um, and then Comprador, on the other- A comprador class that- Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. what's really interesting is that um, in Duras's novel, there's a figure called Monsieur Jo, who is um, this the son of a wealthy land speculator, and his race is not identified. He will later become the Chinese lover in her work, but it's in in the seawall. It's not clear. Mm-hmm. And Pan uh, says that you know, in an interview somewhere else, that he imagined this figure as a as a wealthy 
Sino-Cambodian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cam- Cambodia, sorry, that's French. Well, wealthy <laughs> Sino-Cambodian, and and so he, it's played by um, Randall uh, Randall oh, Duke. Duke, thank you. I was going to say Puda, but that's Jean B- Jean Baptiste. Yeah, Randall Duke. So he 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 makes explicit um, Monsieur Jo's um, race, and and in so doing, suggests something about this class of of local. Um, intermediaries who are complicit in or who are participatory in this um, colonial exploitation mm-hmm. of the working poor. And then on the other side of the, of the, of the section, I'm, I'm looking at the effects of global capital and the return of the French via Alcatel, the French telecommunications company that was responsible for laying the fiber optic cables, Cambodia's first fiber optic cables brought internet to Cam- Cambodia in the late 1990s. Um, and this film anticipates in interesting ways, I think, um, the rise of foreign direct investment in Cambodia and the informal labor market that is essentially sustaining the 21st century construction boom that we see in Phnom Penh, but really all over the country, and that is financed primarily by by China. So we have it's sort of an interesting shift in neo-imperial relations in the region. Um, it's also a theme that is becoming increasingly present in contemporary art, uh, Cambodian art and film. So I'm thinking of um, the photographer Nick Sopal's Green Net series, which, in which she um, superimposes images of women construction workers onto construction sites in very large-scale formats, and then takes the green netting that surrounds the construction sites and weaves it into the, into the photographic image. There's also, um, of course, Davi Shu's um, Diamond Island, which is all about the construction of this this um, really difficult to process, like remarkable playground for the incredibly wealthy. This glitzy, glassy, gorgeous, and I think half finished. I don't, I don't know. But he's looking at the at the young mig- migrant workers from the provinces who come and try to find a place for themselves in this, in this space, you know, in this right. rapidly changing space that seems to have no place for them. And so they're building this space again, that will not house them to which they will not, from which they will not benefit. Um, yeah. So, so those are the bookends. And then in, in between those two chapters, we have contributions, brilliant contributions from Jennifer Kaznav and Kathy Schlenvials. And they both also are interrogating Cambodia's imperial entanglements through the 20th century with the French and the Americans, respectively. Jennifer's written on France is Our Homeland, which is um, a silent film, a silent archival film composed of these um, images from early 20th century nonfiction cinema shot in the colonies. So uh, film shot by members of the Lumière brothers team or by, um, by colonial administrators even and soldiers like home films and then ethnographic films as well. And, and the film sort of presents France in its dual identity as inventor of the cinematograph and inventor of the civilizing mission. Yeah. And Jennifer argues that, you know, that, that Pan's deliberate arrangement of these, of these images within this silent film brings our attention to this um, 
the, to the visual legacy of imperialism as a missing picture because she 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 notes at the outset of the um, essay that it's important that this film was released just a year after the missing picture and so we have this this visual legacy of the imperial project um, as as a missing picture in the French cinematic canon. Um, and then Kathy, uh, in, in her essay, is looking at Shiku the Catch, which is one of, definitely one of his lesser known and, and lesser discussed films. It, it received a very limited distribution. Yeah, I'd, I had never heard of this film, and I'm dying to see it. And it, I, th- I think I was in Siem Reap about the time this was being filmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, um, she discusses this, that despite his you know, relatively established reputation at that yeah. point. Um, and, and it's privileged, you know, it was privileged in certain local Cambodian film festivals, but it didn't, it wasn't picked up. It wasn't really distributed. And so it's, it's, um, it's, it's not one of his better known films, but it, it's a really fascinating and really necessary film. So it's, it's, um, it's a rewriting of Nagisa Oshima's 1961 Japanese film, Shiku, which is itself an adaptation of Kinzaburo Oe's um, short story, The Catch, both of which are exploring sort of very, very um, difficult in-country dynamics, racism and xenophobia in the context of guerre. Uh, Why do I keep speaking French? In the context of the war. Um, and, And... so in in you know for example and I think in 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 Shiku it's in the context of the of World War II but in very peripheral spaces not not main theaters of war but in peripheral spaces and I think this emphasis on the peripheral is important um, for for Kathy in in her essay so Pan relocates the, these source texts to um, a small village during the civil war in Cambodia so between 1967 and 1975. Um, and the narrative is, is it's about an American pilot, uh, a black American pilot who's downed and held in this village by and sort of guarded by young children. And and so it, it's rewritten to this context for Kathy. It's rewritten to this context precisely to bring American Cold War Milita- militarization to bear on Cambodia's war story. Right. To tell that story from a different angle and also um, ultimately to tell a war story that is not one of um, of global powers or uh, from the the perspective of the soldier but one that puts the emphasis a war story precisely on the collateral damage right which I think is a is, a, is an expression from Nixon like Cambodia was collateral damage in in the in the Vietnam project. Um, but this this movie is about collateral damage. And this war story is one of collateral damage. Right. And it's factor again, factoring that uh 1967, 1975 period yes. back into our narrative that um, yes. as so something important. that that you know that obviously led to um the nineteen seventy five to nineteen seventy nine, but it's its own moment in time as well and has and brings in different different global strands to bear on, on this history, on this Cambodian yeah, I mean, story. Um, I think of William Shokras and, and Elizabeth Becker who said, you know, the, the American bombing is 100% essential for the rise of the Khmer Rouge. I mean, it is, it's just absolutely essential. So, so from going from one of his 
lesser known films, we can go into the third section, which I think engages some of his, his best known films. And this section is the question of justice. And it's, it of course uh, looks at S 21 and um, the, uh, the interview film with Duke. Um, uh, Joe, do you want to speak on this? Actually, um, can I? Please. Okay. Let's <laughs> yeah. um, oh. So uh, I know I've been talking a lot, but I'm going to continue. Um, so this one, yeah, this, this, this section, uh, as you say, is on the question of justice. And, and it really looks at how Pan's films frame the encounter with the Khmer Rouge and the encounter with uh, its survivors, but also in these two films you've just mentioned in particular, and remarkably, um, the, the encounter between the Khmer Rouge and its survivors. And, and the chapters in this section are, are generally concerned with, um, you know, with how film can represent crimes against humanity and how film and how Rithi's films in particular engage with uh, the possibilities and limits of, of justice in Cambodia within the context of the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. One of the things, just quick... Um, and, and just for the for the for the uninitiated, the extraordinary chambers of the courts of Cambodia, this is the um, uh, well the the extraordinary um, judicial creation to um, prosecute the uh, surviving Khmer Rouge leaders, of which four yes. have been put on trial. Yes, and three I think have been have been found guilty. So yeah. the question of justice uh, weighs heavily. Um, what does justice actually mean? What does it look like when only the top cadres are to be tried and when they're actually dying before we can put them on trial? And, and tried and, tried as very, very senior citizens. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. they're, you know, decades later. Yes. Yes. And so, and so, and there's a, a lot of, I mean, we could go down a, a path here. I, I'll, I'll not, <laughs> but there's a lot of also interesting work about, about um, what it means to think about justice or pursue justice when you're living, when your neighbor um, was part of this murderous regime was when was once your, um, your, your torturer. Um, th- there's a lot of, there are some interesting films on this very question. Um, but yeah. yeah and I was just, not to interrupt, but yeah, uh, and Ritti himself has contributed to, um, you know, giving training to yeah. filmmakers and helping produce a lot of just those films. So those are uh, questions that are really central to his work. That's right. Yeah, Sorry, to go back to, Leslie. no, 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 not at all. To go back to, his, to the question you asked earlier about his legacy. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's definitely part of it. The training that he's done, not only the training of filmmakers who are asking these 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 second generation, I don't know, these, these next questions, right. But also um, training the sound and audiovisual archivists who, who are um, preserving Cambodia's audiovisual legacy. But I was just going to say that one of the things that we really, that was important to us in the volume was to, to the, the um, chronology that we put at the start of the book, which is Uh um, the idea was, you know, to, to put Ruthie's, you know, the release of the films into dialogue with the events of the ECCC and with these particular moments in history, just to kind of see the back and forth, you know, how, how they're in dialogue. Um, that was, that was, uh, that, that's just a, a little side note. So mm-hmm. 
Right. So to come back to the this particular section, this is what all these chapters are dealing with loosely. So we have um, first Stéphanie Bonzacuin Gauthier and John Kleinen, who are looking at um, how Pan films, films perpetrators, and they're comparing Pan's um, approach with some other well-known perpetrator films, most notably Joshua Oppenheimer's *The Act of Killing*. Um, and, and but they're focused on the ethics of filming the gestures of killing, which for Pan, right, these gestures of killing are, they, they body forth a genocidal ideology, right? And, and for Bonzacuin um, Gauthier and Kleinen, the, 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 the approach, the ethical approach with which Riti, that Riti takes to filming these gestures of killing also give us an, a, an, another level of witnessing and another level of understanding the perpetrators, who, who the perpetrator thinks he is, what he thinks he's doing, what the, you know, what 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 is happening, and and what what that legacy is for 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 the rest of us, for for the survivors, for the victims, for those of us who who, who pay attention to this. Um, and and the, the, the the connections to Joshua Oppenheimer's um, the the act of killing um, uh, are so strong there, and and especially sort of the confusion about what. What is going on in Duke's mind and the difficulty the view the Western viewer has of trying to understand this guy is very similar to the viewer's difficulty in trying to figure out Anwar Congo from Oppenheimer's work, who is um genocidaire, he's a mass murderer from nineteen sixty-five, and it's confusing, unsettling. Um I I, I found I found that it, uh the way they put those two two films in conversation really powerful. Yeah, well, and, and you know, Oppenheimer has said that he was was um, that he was in, inspired by S twenty one. That that was a major major uh, influence for him. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting you say you know trying to process what Deutsch is, what he's thinking, who, how he understands, you know. Um, this moment in time, Donald Reed is 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 getting at that in his um, in the next chapter, and his his essay compares Pan's account of Deutsch with the French anthropologist François Bizot's account yeah. of Deutsch, and and which is a, and, the the, mem- the memoir The Gate, and then I think there's a follow up book as well where he is. confronts Deutsch. But anyway, François Bizot. I don't remember the title, but that's exactly yeah, yeah that's right. Um, and he argue, Reed argues that, uh, or Donald argues that, where um, Bizot sees in, De- in Deutsch the universality of evil, the capacity we all carry to inflict such cruelty and harm, and sees in his interaction with Deutsch, um, sees it with gratitude, right? Insofar as it helps him to see himself. Uh, in, in, with clearer eyes and understand himself better. Pan, on the other hand, sees uh, sees this experience as as precisely as you've sort of already alluded to as 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 being in front of a wall of self delusion that just like an impenetrable wall. And he sees this interaction as 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 actually a failed opportunity for Deutsch for the intransigent and potentially del- delusional Deutsch to see and understand himself. 
Um, so that's a really, a really interesting comparison. And then, and then the section finishes with Ryan Moore. Just, just one, one yeah. thing about one more thing I want to add about Buzo for people who don't know the book The Gate. It's his memoir of being kidnapped by the Khmer Rouge uh, during that pre nineteen seventy five period, and he's held for several months. And um, by all accounts, I mean, sh- should have been executed by Khmer Rouge logic, right? But uh, or, or or lack thereof. Um, but um, I think Doik actually argues for uh, sparing him and releasing him. Mm-hmm. So here's this Westerner who's held in the Khmer Rouge during the Civil War, uh, interrogated for um, uh, you know weeks, months, and then released. And it's just such an that the book the doc the, the gate is such an incredible document um, for what what was going on in this very shadowy unknown organization that Ankar that will become the leadership of the uh, of Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge years. Yes, that's in a that's in a in a, a different um, Khmer Rouge prison, right? It's outside uh, yeah. of Phnom Penh, and Deutsch has this odd sort of philosophical, in quotes, side to him where he likes to sit around and debate on the meaning of life. And he tries to do that with Ritty in the film to a certain degree. It's part of what makes him such an odd uh, character to confront in the film. And it seems like Bizot sort of played along with that quite a bit and and managed yeah. to sort of talk himself into freedom. Um, but it's very interesting. And the conclusions are very different. Um, uh, Bizot's conclusion on... Deutsch versus Ritty's conclusion. And so, yes, Donald's uh, chapter is really interesting about that. But yeah. it's also, yeah, it's, 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 it's important to note that, you know, um, Bizot is encountering the Deutsch of 67 to 75, like at the early, mm. before he mm-hmm. becomes the head of, of Tulslang. And, and, uh, and Ritty is, is obviously encountering someone who has tried to um, put that behind him or tried to, 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 who's in denial, I guess, about, about that experience. So they're two very different, um, and, 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 two different, and very gone different through this very, in very intense religious conversion yes. to yes. evangelical yes. Christianity. Um, yeah. I mean, it's sort of leaving the guilt side out of it. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, which, yeah. With which he thinks he's absolved himself. Of the, but there's also a lot of, I mean, there's also quite a lot of self-denial. <laughs> you know, he's just, yeah. in the way he understands his role. Um, he understood his role as an educator, right? He was a political educator. That was his job. Right. To teach right. Ideology. Um, so, so Raya Morag is, uh, she, she gives the last essay in that, in that section. And she offers a, um, her, her essay critiques what she sees as a politically motivated push to reconcile, right? This, this, this push to, to move on, to, to reconcile and forgive. And she talks about the, the strategies with which Pan um, resists this push to reconcile and with which he pursues what she calls um, a non-vindictive moral resentment. So that he sits in this space of resentment that is not vindictive, but that is nonetheless still there. Um, and, and she argues precisely that, you know, Pan, uh, well, I mean, the point is that Pan does not make films that move on. And he does not make films to move on. Uh, instead, his work shows how evil can and perhaps should be named, be judged, and be integrated into a system of ethics. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It's a very, very powerful sort of way to end that, that reflection on what justice looks like now. And so then the, uh, the fourth section, memory, voice, and cinematic practice. Um, Joe, do you, do you want to say a few words yes. on that? Yeah, yeah, I will take care of this one. And I'll try to be uh, brief again, too. Um, these, uh, these chapters uh, sort of attempt to uh, assess or evaluate or look at Ritti's work uh, as a filmmaker, right? Um, uh, and, and as an image maker um, and how his films reflect memory and voice. Um, so the first chapter in this section is by Lindsay French. Uh, she's got a very interesting perspective because she worked in um, sites to, uh, for something like 18 months, for a really long time, actually, in uh, 1989. Uh, so she knows the camp really, really well. Um, and we actually asked her to just sort of watch the film and reflect on just her feelings about the camp and seeing the camp in Ritti's film. Um, she was struck by a lot of the things we've already talked about, just his way of uh, filming everyday life, uh, filming voices, filming this woman, Yim Ohm, in her, um, her, especially in her frustrations um, with the kind of lack of, of, of transmission of her previous way of life. She had been in camps for, again, like 10 years. Um, she came from a farming family. Her children think rice comes in a bag and, and vegetables come in a can, right? Um, so she, uh, these are major themes that she saw that did uh, reflect what she experienced in the camps. Um, but every once in a while, there was some differences, but I'll leave the reader to, um, to find those out um, reading them. She did stress how much of a, a political act it is to just follow someone around in their daily life um, in the sort of UN machinery at the time. There was, everything was just sort of blocked. People just couldn't get on with their lives. Um, and I think that's very true. And it's sort of a subtext in that film yeah. um, that's not made overt. And this is, this is after over a decade of these camps being in existence and also the, the bizarre and I think surprising to many Americans um, political uh, puzzle of the 1980s, whereby Khmer Rouge bad, but uh, Vietnam invades, overthrows the Khmer Rouge. Well, Vietnam worse. Therefore the United States indirectly and to a certain degree directly supports the the coalition that involves the Khmer Rouge. Right. The, the Khmer, the Khmer Rouge, Rouge sit on the UN. They sit um, on the UN. They're yeah. located close to the Thai border, so not too far from these camps, but there's also sort of bandits around the camps. So, there's so the a camp Thai with... who don't want the camps in Thailand. So there's and, all these kind yeah. of issues that are are yeah. uh present but sort of under under the surface in the film yes yeah um the 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 end of that essay the description of what the camp is like at night is just absolutely terrifying and the the sort of illusion of safety during the day versus the reality of what happens once darkness falls her essay ends on a slightly more hopeful note than his film though because she was she saw the end of the camp so the camp closed and people got to move on not too long afterwards was the film ends just in the dark. Uh, yeah. And it's one camera sort of wandering through these dark 
spaces with maybe a flashlight kind of catching glimpses of people's faces. And it's, it's really spooky to be honest with you. Um, it's a scary ending to the film. Yeah. Although it, she, she, she was the author who um, was one of the few foreigners to spend the night in the camp. Correct. Just like one she, night she spent one night in she, 18 months in 18 months. Yeah. The, the, that the, the NGOs would get out of there. The UN folks would get out of there at nightfall. Mm-hmm. And then yes. what the reality is. And I mean, I, I, think I believe they, yeah. There was protection for her um, yeah. through the UN. That yeah. yeah. Um, so moving on. So uh, Vicente Sanchez Biosca, who's uh, written a lot about Cambodian film and a lot about Ritipan as well. Um, his uh, chapter is really about Bopana, uh, the Hoot Bopana, the historical actual Bopana. And we haven't really talked about, um, but he talks about her, so Bopana, who was one of the victims of um, of Duch, Duch was um, obsessed with Bopana with making her uh, with making her confess and all these. Um, so he interviewed her on several occasions while she was um, detained um, or imprisoned at S twenty one. She was tortured and eventually killed as well. Um, and uh, when people were detained, they had identification photos taken. Uh, you can see a lot of those photos there in the museum that still exists today. Um, and her photo is extremely striking. It's a very, very striking film. She's young. She's, I mean, she's beautiful, I guess, but she's also got this expression, this sort of stony and stand almost standoffish expression. You can sense her sort of spirit of resistance um, in this image. And that image gets um, included in a lot of Ritti's films. Um, in lots of different ways. For example, it's on Duch's table when he's being interviewed by Ritti. So it's a constant reminder of, of his guilt, um, one he doesn't really look at very much, but it's there. Um, and then there's other, fil- there's other images of Bopana. Um, there, an image was found of her that's very different. It's, uh, she's got sort of a Western haircut. She looks beautiful. She's dressed um, in, a, um, in a sort of Yes, popular way. Yeah, the, that image is actually on the cover of our, our book, among some other images. We could talk about the cover um, a little bit later. But um, And then there's images painted by Van Knott, um as well and repainted and different colors are used. Um, and so Vicente's essay really traces this image throughout um, Ritti's work. Um, and her story, I, I should mention, I think it was first told by Elizabeth Becker, mm-hmm. whom you interviewed just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a really mm-hmm. interesting interview and a great book by Elizabeth Becker. Oh, all, all Elizabeth Becker books are wonderful. <laughs> she's, yes. she's, she's really one of my heroes. Um, yeah. it was, I was so honored to interview her for new books. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so uh, the, Third essay in that section by David LaRocca. This is an interesting essay because David LaRocca has really no um, sort of reason to be interested in Ritti Pan's work. Um, he doesn't have sort of an inher- inherent interest in Cambodia. Um, he's an American film scholar who's interested in film philosophy. Uh, and I think his essay really attests to just how important an author Ritti has become uh, on a worldwide scope. And so David um, uh, looks at Ritti as a, as, a, as a sophisticated documentary maker, an innovative doc- documentary maker, and he puts him alongside of other 
similar uh, documentary makers like Sally Polly, um, who made this um, wonderfully interesting uh, uh, melange of fiction and documentary to tell the story of her family, for example, um, and various other documentary makers like that. So um, his uh, his essay uh, explores just the the complex style, the montage style, and all the combinations of things that Riti does to to tell the past, to tap into memory in a way that is not sort of a straightforward documentary. And that has kind of left behind this idea that documentaries have to um, show the truth in order to tell the truth, I guess is how I would put it. Um, like and then that. the final, yeah. yeah. I like that. Sorry, I'm on a roll here. That's great. <laughs> uh, the final chapter, the wrap-up chapter, I guess, is by Soko Pai. Um, and it's a really beautiful essay. Soko has worked a lot on post-memory um, in, the, in the Cambodian um, context. Uh, she talks about Riti as a storyteller. Uh, so a storyteller, and she's sort of inspired by Walter Benjamin's um, philosophy of the storyteller. As someone who speaks, who sort of uh, transmits um, lessons that come from personal experience. Um, and uh, in Ritti's case, those lessons are both individual and collective. There's, they're everybody's message. And what she finds, I think, really interesting, it was, at least to me, it was fascinating in some of his more recent films, um, is the idea that part of that collective experience are, are the dead. Um, they're the people that we have all lost. And how does one make a film that includes the dead, right? Um, and she um, goes into uh, some Buddhist uh, philosophy about um, how people die um, and the, the idea that people who die in a tragic way or they die too early or they die in some odd circumstance um, are what um, is called, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Khmer, but are called the uncooked dead, right? They're the mm -hmm. dead that are raw, the, the dead that are not ready um, yet. Um, and so uh, this idea of the uncooked dead sort of uh, works its way into Ritti's more recent films. And you have lots of sort of indications of spirituality in those films, um, just one example that comes to mind, like sort of um, a drone shots over the Cambodian countryside that aren't really from anyone's point of view and don't really show anything. You just have this idea of wandering over mm -hmm. the space, right? Or images. Um, actually, the image on the front of our book comes from uh, the film Grays Without Names. And if uh, if your listeners can see uh, the cover at some point, it shows sort of an artificial landscape. It's made, it's one of these models that Ritti likes to make, but it's um, some of the models are sort of broken. The trees look a little broken, right? It looks like there's maybe been bombing or something happening there. Um, there looks like there could be grave mounds um, on the ground. Um, and then there's all these photographs and most of them are members of his family. His mother is the photograph to the left. Bopana is a photograph to the right, right? So these are incredibly important people who have died in this experience. And the photographs will fade in and out um, during the shot. So sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not there. Um, and uh, the, the French uh, philosopher thinker Roland Barthes writes about uh, photography and he says a, photo a photograph of the past 
tells me this thing, this person is here, right? It's an actual photograph of the person, but it also tells me this person is gone because the photograph is just this remainder of that person. And I think there's a lot of echoes of this um, in, in Ritti's late style. And she brings this out beautifully. I think too that, I'm sorry if I could just interrupt for a second, that the land tells us that, right? And I think that's part of the images coming in and coming out is that the the land tells us, the land, just to come back to the land as a theme, like the land has has witnessed um, this history. The land, uh, if, if you know how to listen and to commune with this land, can tell us of the people who are here and not here. And it, it, it bears witness to this, to this moment as well. Yeah. It really makes me think of the work of a um, geographer, last name Tyner, T-Y-N-E-R. I think his first name is, is it James? I'm drawing a blank on his first name, but last name is Tyner. And he's, he, again, trained in geography, but a very historically minded geographer who's done some really incredible work on Cambodia and particularly the Khmer Rouge period and talking about the land and linking it to trauma and sites of trauma and the um both in terms of uh the bombing the american bombing but also in terms of the um the the so-called killing fields and that uh these the, these sort of unmarked unnamed still yet to be really articulated traumas which have been built into the land um so yeah that, Grace, that, that, yeah grace without a name um is made uh, as Ritti is a, sort of an autobiographical film and he's trying to find places where his family may have been killed. And there are interviews with uh, both victims and perpetrators, but sitting next to trees and these trees are seen as these kind of witnesses of, of what happened in the past. Yeah. I would say there are interviews with the land in that film as well. There are mm-hmm. moments where the camera just, it, it is just, the land telling us something, you know, the, the, the breeze, we just, we just have these, these beautiful oral, the emphasis on the, on the diegetic sound and the, and the, the, the breeze moving through the trees. And, and that for me is another kind of interview where he's asking questions um, that, that are designed. I mean, that, you know, that he hopes will lead him to the grave sites of his lost ones, knowing full well that they won't, you know, but he asks nonetheless of people and of places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is sort of an awkward question to wrap up the discussion of the book with because Riti Bond is alive and well and still productive. But um, you know, what will his legacy be? Um, you know, from from my film viewing and the work I do on uh on um uh memory of the Cold War in in, Cam- in, in Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Vietnam, uh and Indonesia. Um Clearly, he had an influence on Joshua Oppenheimer, and um, uh, Joshua wrote a really nice essay about that in his edited volume mm-hmm. on the debt he owes to Rithi Pan. And you know, people talk about the um, the act of killing, but I think the the second film, which is less well known um, and a more challenging film, is much more of a, a Rithi Pan influenced film, um, and that's the Look of Silence. And I see a lot of sight too in the look of silence and the long, long, long takes and people doing their, their mundane daily chores and the, the kind of the, the suffering of this daily life. Um, uh, look of silence focuses on a very, very, very 
old couple living in a, a, a tiny little shack um, who've survivors, but uh, victims by association of the, the Indonesian genocide. But anyway, I could, I could talk about Joshua yeah. for ages. He's, he's just so profound. Um, but um, so, you know, you, you've talked about Ruthie Pond and the Bopana Institute um, training a new generation of uh, Khmer filmmakers. What are some of his other legacies, do you think? Yeah, well, I think his legacy is really going to be international, right? Because I think he's uh, one of the things we wanted to argue in the book was that Ritti has really become a world filmmaker. Um, and I think that um, that will continue. I think um, Oppenheimer is sort of an indication of, of that. Um, I just have one sort of footnote on the Oppenheimer uh, Ritti Pan relationship. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, yeah, the, the, the act of killing to me is clearly um, influenced by, by Ritti, um, but I feel like both that film and maybe Bizot's book um, have kind of a difference from, from, from Ritti Pan uh, that I find interesting, which is that Ritti really comes at this as, uh, I'm not saying he's victimized, but as uh, from the point of view of a victim, right? Mm-hmm. And as being from the point of view of the victim, the perpetrator is going to always be put in the space of the perpetrator, right? Um, there's never going to be Ritti Pan sort of tricking the perpetrator into kind of enjoying himself, <laughs> like you see in the act of killing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not going to be a broader sort of meditation on the evil that we all have inside of us, uh, like you see in Bizo, for instance. Um, so there are some differences that I find interesting, even though I know that Ritti really likes Oppenheimer's work as, uh, as well. Um, but yeah, no, Ritti is, he's just one of the most important voices, um, in Cambodia, uh, commemorating what happened, um, commenting on what's going on in, in Cambodia today, Cambodia's place in the world. Um, so I think that's really important. I think what he's done through the Bopana Center, but also through sort of co-production, even with like Angelina Jolie, um, Mm -hmm. these things, uh, bring, some kind of economic wealth even to Cambodia. Uh, so his influence in Cambodia, Cambodia goes beyond cinema, um, but his cinematic influence goes beyond Cambodia, I guess is how I'd put it. Yeah. Yeah. So you've both been really generous with your time and um, this is a good, good long interview for props to the listener for staying here. Um, uh, um, but at the the uh, we always finish with two questions for these interviews. So um, we love to ask our authors for recommendations. So can each of you suggest two books our listeners should read? And since you're scholars of film, uh, give us two books and two films that we should uh, we should check out. Um, Leslie, what are your what are your suggestions? Okay, I'll keep this brief. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to stay in Cambodia and I'm going to recommend, um, Boyd Lee, uh, and mm-hmm. her traces of trauma precisely because it asks like how a mor- morally shattered nation can go on living. And it opens with this beautiful discussion of Amy Sanford's performance art in which she precisely, as Joe, uh, um, was talking about earlier, surrounds herself with earthenware jars from the province, uh, native, home province of her father picks them up one by one, shatters them on the ground, and then sits down before them and painstakingly puts them back together, giving us this visual rendering of Baksabat. You know, these 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 jars are forever broken, but whole somehow whole again. 
Well, you you get extra points there because Bortley is now at UC Santa Cruz, which is my alma mater. So go go fighting banana slugs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm just thinking of that fabulous tree on the UC Santa Cruz uh, campus. I don't know, somewhere I've spent some time at the top of it, but that was many years ago. then I would also recommend Raya Morag's. So these are both books that came out last year as well. So mm-hmm, they're super mm-hmm. contemporary. Raya Morag's um, Perpetrator Cinema. For, I would recommend that for anyone, any student of Southeast Asian cinema. I'd say it's a must. And it gives a fuller treatment of this idea of her, of her ideas on reconciliation and resentment in Cambodia. And focuses particularly on contemporary uh, Cambodian documentary about the genocide. Great. Um, as for the films, um, I another must for any student of Southeast Asian cinema is Davi Shu's Golden Slumber, uh, which is, offers this really intimate history and, and sort of palimpsestic uh, memory or memorial of the Cambodian film industry of the 1960s and, mm. and early 70s. But it's also really image and what uh, really interesting in what it does with the image, in that um, it it doesn't. It, it, it sort of, like Pan, it sort of disrupts our expectations, the expectations that we bring to the documentary genre insofar as we think, oh, well, a movie that's about the Cambodian film industry of the 60s is going to show us footage from uh, the 1960s. But but Shu does not do that until the very, very end. And sort of, and, and that's a very interesting sort of decision to make aesthetically. And, and his emphasis on not on the films necessarily, but on the making of the films and the people behind the films, both in the past and and today. That sounds great because you know there's a there's a fabulous documentary called "Don't Think I've Forgotten" yes. about uh, the the psychedelic rock scene in Phnom Penh in the early seventies yes. that um, that I've seen a few times. It's just amazing. But okay, second yeah. film. Yeah, so the second one is Nankovich's um, "Last Night I Saw You Smiling," which is yeah. a um, which is I, I I I'm still processing it, having just seen it. Um, but I would I would if I could you know summarize it in one sentence, I would say it is a love song to the White Building. It's a love song. Mm. The title is taken from a, a Sin Sitamut song, one of the the you know the the, the great crooners of the 1960s, and. Um, and yeah, and there's there's just so much music and and so much love and in that in that film and so I would say it, it, yeah I would call it a love song to the White Building. Those would be my recs. Fabulous, Joe. Okay, I'm going to stick with the volume with uh, authors from the volume as well. <laughs> okay. um, so Kataria Um's book um, from the Land of Shadows: War, Revolution, and the Making of the Cambodian Diaspora, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, a really really great book in uh, in which she again, looks at uh, what happened to folks in Cambodia before they became refugees, before they left. Um, And it also is filled with interviews with people from the Cambodian diaspora, um, where she unpacks all of the different types of issues that they have in their, in their new culture. Um, So that it's a, and and she's a beautiful writer and just a beautiful thinker. Um, And then the other book, which um, we haven't really mentioned too much, although I think Leslie did a bit, is Riti Pons, The Elimination, um, which uh, came out of his, when he was talking with Dutch. um, And it's where Riti tells his own story um, of, of that period um, in a straight, a kind of straightforward way. So I think, um, and it's got a beautiful translation by someone named John Cullen, but it's beautifully mm-hmm. translated into English. Um, so those are my two, 
books. My films are the other two films by Davy Chu and uh, Nyan Kavich. So Davy Chu f- followed up with a film called Diamond Island, which is about the Diamond Island development and young people who work there and who are trying to find their way in contemporary Cambodian society in the world. Um, and Nyan Kavich, uh, his newest film is called White Building. This film is not a documentary. It's a fiction set in the White Building, which is where uh, Nyan Kavich grew up. Um, and uh, both of these films uh, are kind of Bildungsromans of young uh, men coming into adulthood and who try to deal with um, what's going on in Cambodia today. They're both about um, architecture as well. So. Great. And finally, what are you working on now? Um, Joe, you go first. Yeah, I'll go first because um, it's actually related. Um, so uh, uh, most of these films we just mentioned have been produced by a company, uh, a new production company, independent production company called Anti-Archive um, in uh, Phnom Penh, founded by Davy Chu um, but and some other partners. Um, and I'm just working on an article about the about the films that they produce and sort of where they're coming from um and they're extremely interesting because of course the the sort of past history is important to them but they're all very young people and they're even more focused on cambodia today great and leslie um well i am i wouldn't say this is what you might expect to see from me next given how long it's taken me to write it but i i am working on a book which is tentatively titled uh sex scenes imperialism ambivalence and sex work in southeast asia um and uh so this this book i'm i'm basically i'm asking you know how um for whom and under what conditions is is sex work represented in Southeast Asia, and I, I'm considering um, how debates about transna- tra- transactional sex and and the the figures they ensnare. So when I say the figures, I mean like the um, innocent trafficking victim, the empowered call girl, the the pimp, the John, etc. So how these um, debates and these figures are mediated in fiction and creative nonfiction. And the first chapter, which is actually completed is um, on Riti Pan. So it's on um, One Night After the War and uh, Paper Cannot Wrap Ember, both of which look at, you know, sort of the um, the economic and social legacies of, of, of you know, the Pol Pot time, but pr- through the question of this particular figure, the sex worker. Uh, at right. least that's what I argue. I mean, it, Great. I look forward to seeing that. I've, I've done some research on the uh, representations of sex work and the uh, turn early turn turn of the century Hanoi, in, oh, um, in the in the French press. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's uh, yeah, um, do. a yeah, piece yeah, I put yeah. in the Journal of World History on uh, se- sex in the colonial city. So you know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> tip of the hat, to Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> well, of course, why not? Um, no, that's great. Please do send that to me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really, really enjoyed this. I mean, it's, it's a great collection and you're talking about some really fabulous films. Thanks, Thanks you, Mike. Mike, Thanks for having time. us. Yeah. And for having us for so long. <laughs> so this has been a conversation with Leslie Barnes and Joseph Mai, editors of the Cinema of Rithi Pond, Everything Has a Soul. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. And this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.